1: So glad you could stop by to revel in wrong think with me today. Now, if you're kind of a first time wrong thinker, I know it may seem pretty intimidating. This sounds really subversive and maybe a little bit antisocial, but uh, believe it or not, this is a necessary mechanism for surviving in a time of truth deficiency. And we definitely live in a time of truth deficiency. Look at how many different forces are arrayed against us and trying to steer us into a correct narrative, the one true narrative which all must believe or else. And if you don't, well, then, you know, the mob is there to cancel you and to punish you and otherwise inflict pain upon you for daring to stray from the orthodoxy of the day. I'm more of the mindset that, uh, look, we're free people or we should be free people but you're only as free as those rights that you are willing to claim, use, and defend. So that right to think for yourself, that's one of the most important, and I'm here not to tell you what to think, but to encourage you to think as clearly and independently, and if necessary, to engage in as much wrong think as you need to, to make sure that you are the one calling the shots for what is real and what isn't. Again, I know it sounds subversive, but it's also kind of exhilarating. So, hey, let's uh, let's charge on ahead. I want to thank a couple of my sponsors uh, who have made this program possible day in and day out. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, GarageDoorProServices.com, and also HSLAMMO.com. If you look on my website, TheBrianHydeShow.com, you'll find a special link to each one of these sponsors. And if you need what they are offering... I would encourage you, please do business with them. Let them know that their message reached you. So I want to start with something kind of thoughtful today. And, and I've really come to count on Annie Holmquist over the years. She was the editor for IntellectualTakeout.org. She has since moved on and is, is doing her own thing now. But I've subscribed to her Substack. I do recommend her as, as just a good, refreshing source of perspective on the world. And, and here's the topic that she has Leaving a legacy through simplicity. Now, I don't. Do you spend much time thinking about legacy? Okay, I've I've kind of been thinking about this of late, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get kind of personal before I share some excerpts from her essay. But um, sitting in the doctor's office with my mom, um, mom is getting up there in years. She has some some health concerns and health problems, and uh, we were talking with her doctor about uh, one health concern in particular, and you know possible things that we could do to mitigate it. And you know it, it was, it was really sobering, and and I found myself actually kind of having to you know wipe away a tear um, as as I'm hearing her just discuss with her doctor, okay, and if I don't do anything about this, you know, basically, how long do I have to live? And uh, you know, the answer fortunately wasn't well. You know, he looked at his watch. Oh, I got around an hour here. No, it, it was uh, it was actually a pretty good prognosis, but man, I got to tell you, I am my my mom's approaching 90 years old and i am just not ready to grow up <laughs> i'm not and so this is uh, it's something that i've seen coming for a long time but it's it's got me a little bit reflective because um you know it's it's clear she's she's doing everything she can to get things in order and and i admire her and i love her for doing that but it's it's still just one of those uh, this is one of those turning points in life and and uh, sadly this is this is where we find ourselves so I'm thinking a little bit about her legacy. I'm thinking about my own legacy. This, is, this has been, you know, on my mind. And then I come across this wonderful essay from Annie Holmquist. Now, it starts out with kind of an interesting story. She talks about coming across this story in the Washington Post about a young woman who scours graveyards across the country looking for recipes to make. Now, I know, your recipes in a graveyard? Really? It does kind of sound weird, but this, uh, this young woman, her name is Rosie Grant, was intrigued upon hearing the concept, and the first gravestone recipe she came across was featured on Naomi Odessa Miller Dawson's Grave, and it was for Spritz Cookies. So Grant whipped up a batch and shared the results on her TikTok account, and its success encouraged her to hunt down other gravestone recipes and try them as well. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, when I read about Grant's uh, graveyard cooking ventures, I must admit that I thought it was a little sad. Now, not making the recipe, that part was touching and kind of an honoring thing for Grant to do. But what was sad was the fact that some people seemed to think that a single recipe was the most important legacy they had to leave behind. In fact, she said such a thought made me stop and ask myself, what kind of legacy will I leave behind one day when I'm dead and buried? Do I want my legacy to be as simple and small as a recipe on a gravestone, or do I want it to be much bigger, a legacy that touches people personally, makes them better individuals, even encourages some to go on and impact the world at large? Now, Annie Holmquist says, I suspect most of us would automatically choose the latter. I mean, who doesn't want his life to count and make a difference? Forget that recipe on the gravestone. We're setting our sights on something higher and more worthy, we say to ourselves. But then she says, I read further in the article, and my perspective began to change, for in some cases, there was more behind these recipes than meets the eye viewing the gravestone. So take Kay Andrews, for example, whose gravestone recipe for fudge was another one that Grant made for her TikTok account. Kay's family described her as the most joyful, loving person who was always baking treats to give to others. Such food gifts, Kay's granddaughter noted, were how she really showed her love. So, the fudge recipe from her gravestone may look like the only legacy Kay leaves behind, but in reality, her legacy was what she did with that fudge. She poured her time and energy into making something enjoyable and then gave it away with her love. She made others feel special and wanted through simple actions and simple and wanted rather through simple actions and gifts. Now, Annie Holmquist says we only have her fudge recipe to look at on this side of eternity, but who knows what we'll find on the other side. The fact is, those simple actions that she faithfully did may have made an enormous impact for good. 19th century writer Elizabeth Rundle Charles captured how small faithful actions can make for a huge impact for good in her poem, The Child on the Judgment Seat. That poem reads, Go back to thy garden plot, sweetheart. Go back till the evening falls, and bind thy lilies, and train thy vines, till for thee the master calls. Go make thy garden fair as thou canst, thou workest never alone, perhaps he whose plot is next to thine will see it, and mend his own, and may the next copy his, sweetheart, till all grows fair and sweet, and when the master comes at eve, happy faces his coming will greet. Annie Holmquist says, many of us look at our world today, sighing in discouragement and wondering what on earth we, the simple average Americans, can do to change the seemingly unstoppable train wreck that our country is headed for. We're too ordinary to make a big difference, we murmur to ourselves. But she says, what we forget is that the simple, faithful, heartfelt acts of love and kindness that truly make the difference in this world, those are what counts. When we work and we do our best in the areas in which we have been planted... Our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, being faithful even in the daily mundane tasks we've been given, but taking time to be the listening ear, the helping hand, the caring friend, and the kind neighbor, then our legacy will be nothing to sneeze at once we're dead and buried. Instead, it will grow and spread from one little garden plot to another, fed by the love and care and faithfulness we bring to our everyday tasks. Now, I didn't share this with you in the hopes that, uh, well, this should get you thinking about your death and, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to make this, you know, some kind of morbid uh, fixation here. But the fact of the matter is, every single one of us is going to leave a legacy of some kind. And the, the time to make the decision about what kind of legacy would I like to leave is not just at the moment before you're getting ready to check out. It's too late by then. You're already creating your legacy every day through the decisions that we make. We're creating that legacy. So if you're feeling like, well, you know, there's, there's probably more I could or should be doing. This is not an excuse to beat yourself up. This is, this is an opportunity, if you will, for introspection and, and, again, to clarify what really matters most. And I'm going to suggest something that, uh, that I, I tried many years ago and found it to be extremely helpful. And that is... Sit down and write your own obituary and and just write about what, how would you want to be remembered? If someone were to stand up and read this eulogy for you at your funeral, or if someone were to read in the paper that you had passed away and they wanted, well, who was this person? What would you want them to know about you? This isn't a, you know, chance to flex and brag and, well, you know, I was nearly perfect and, you know, I was so strong and handsome and everybody loved me no matter what. It's more a matter of clarifying what actually matters to you. What really, deep down, is most important in life? And I think you'll find, as, as uh, most of us who tried that exercise did, you know, the, the material stuff and a lot of the petty things, you know, the, the political contests, the power struggles back and forth, that's not what mattered. It's the little things. And it's the, the, the more often than not, People we've, the people who joined me in this exercise of writing our own obituaries found that if I want to be remembered for anything, I want to be remembered for actually helping people around me, lifting people around me in a way that left them feeling better equipped to face life.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks again for joining me to revel in wrong think today. This program is made possible by garagedoorproservices.com. Go to their website. Check out what their customers are saying about them. Yes, you'll see the, the different aspects of installation, service, and repair for garage doors that they do. That's an important job. They do it commercially as well as residentially, but I want you to see what their customers are saying because it's important when you find a business that actually goes out of their way to take care of their customers and and to go the extra mile and make sure that you are getting positively outrageous good service. People need to know about that. And I'm confident as you look at the reviews at garagedoorproservices.com, you're going to see that, uh, boy, if you have a need for garage doors in St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Colorado City, that beautiful little corner of color country. These are the folks you want to talk to. GarageDoorProServices.com. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in here. Um, I guess I'm going to I'm going to take on something here that that has been on my mind and that is one of the downsides of human nature is we often fail to learn from our mistakes. And there's sometimes I've had to make a mistake, you know, multiple times before I finally got it through my thick head and okay, that's this is not working. One of the biggest mistakes that I feel like collectively we seem to have failed to learn from is that the people who locked us down are perfectly willing to do it again. In fact, I've got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, Pick this one up off intellectualtakeout.org. The lords of lockdown, he says, barely escaped their worst possible fate, namely that the topic would become the national and international source of scandal that it should be. And let's add the vaccine mandates here too. Even if such had been morally justified, which they were not, there's absolutely no practical reason for them at all. Jeffrey Tucker says to have imposed both of these within the course of one year with zero evidence that they achieved anything for public health and vast amounts of unfolding evidence that they ruined life quality for countless millions, that qualifies as a scandal for the ages. It was in the U.S., but also in nearly every country in the world but a few. So he asks, might that have huge political implications? One would suppose so. And yet today it appears that truth and justice are further off than ever. The most passionate of the anti-lockdown governors, those who never locked down or opened earlier than the rest of the country, won on their record. Most of the rest joined the entire political establishment in pretending that all of this is a non-issue. Now, tragically, this tactic seems to have worked better than it should have. Meanwhile he says here are a few points to consider. The US government, through the Transportation Safety Administration, has signed yet another order extending the ban on unvaccinated international visitors until january eighth of twenty twenty three. So that means no person who has managed to refuse the shot is allowed to come to the US for any reason. This is thirty percent of the world's population banned to even enter the US on their own dime. Now, something like this would have been inconceivably illiberal three years ago and been a source of enormous controversy and outrage. But today, the extension barely makes the news. The Biden administration has once again extended the COVID emergency declaration another 90 days, which continues to grant government vast powers without congressional approval. Under a state of emergency, the constitutional structure of the U.S. is effectively suspended and the country remains on a wartime footing this announcement was not controversial and like the above it barely made the news many colleges and universities and other schools and public agencies continue to enforce the vaccine mandate even without any solid science behind the approval of the bivalent shots or any real rationale behind the push given that most people have long ago been exposed and acquired natural immunity and moreover it's very well established that the shots do not protect anyone from infection nor stop transmission They just keep doing this anyway. Masking is not in disrepute because we never really obtained anything like an honest admission of their failure to control the spread. Even today, there is a percentage of people out there permanently traumatized. Jeffrey Tucker says, on travels, I'm seeing perhaps 10 to 20 percent, but in some northeastern cities, regular wearing of masks is very common. Once they became a symbol of political compliance and virtue, that sealed the deal and the culture was changed. Now we face the threat of mask mandates whenever government deems it necessary because the Transportation Safety Authority has been given the go-ahead by the courts. The end of vaccine mandates in most areas of life and hence also the drive for a passport to distinguish between clean and unclean people is a good sign. But he says the infrastructure is still in place and becoming more sophisticated, so it's hardly a final victory. It might only be a temporary respite while all the ambitions are still extant. More than that, the Biden administration and all that it represents, including the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and everything else called the establishment, has its own pandemic plans in place. The idea is not to dial back the mandates or cool it on them. It's the reverse. Centralize all pandemic planning to make a South Dakota, Georgia, and Florida experience impossible the next time. Also, spend tens of billions in more money. Now, he says, the principle that seems to have emerged among the agencies, intellectuals and politicians who did this. Whatever you do, never admit to having made any major mistakes and never connect the economic, cultural, health and educational disasters all around us to anything the government did in 2020 or 2021. That would be nothing but a conspiracy theory. He says the pandemic racket is so huge at this point that it's even embroiled in the FTX meltdown over the weekend. Sam Bankman frieds brother, Gabe, actually founded a nonprofit solely for the purpose of providing support for the $30 billion the Biden administration has allocated to pandemic planning. The institution guarding against pandemics is very obviously a honeypot for such funding, complete with the -the on-the-record endorsements from many Democrat Party candidates who won election. Meanwhile, yes, there have been many successful court challenges to many features of the pandemic response, but not enough. The main machinery that took away liberty and property in the name of virus control is still in place in all its essentials. The CDC to this day brags of its awesome quarantine powers that it can deploy any time government deems it necessary. Nothing about that has changed. So in the big picture, and rendered in a philosophical sense, humanity seems to have lost its ability to learn from its own errors. Put in more gritty terms... Jeffrey Tucker says too many people among ruling class interests gained financially and in terms of the lust for power during the pandemic to prompt any serious rethinking and reform. In any case, he says that rethinking and reform is now put off for another day. Anyone seriously considered about the future of humanity and the civilizations it built must throw themselves into the long term battle for truth and reason. That will require that we use every bit of what remains of free speech and the remains of the longing for integrity and accountability in public life. The group we have come to call they want a demoralized population and a silent public square. We cannot allow that to happen. I know you were probably hoping, well, maybe there's some good news here, but th- that's not good news. And his conclusion is correct. When Jeffrey Tucker says, they will lock you down again. It appears to me that they are just, they, you know, the establishment, the lockdown people, the people who want control, are looking for whatever reason. What, RSV is on the uptick? Well, we better look at this and maybe, what, the flu is back after a two-year hiatus? Well, maybe we need to uh, consider a lockdown or something. They tasted a little bit of what it was like to have almost absolute authority and they liked it and I I really had hoped you know sadly (laughs) it was it was in vain I really hoped that enough people would still remember and would would let that guide their votes to take the power away from those people who inflicted the lockdowns and the mandates and all the division on us over the course of the last two and a half years but they didn't and I'm not looking to lay blame so much as just observing that uh, I don't know if people were afraid to, to, to step outside of the boundaries of approved opinion. I don't know what it is. Maybe they allowed themselves to be gaslighted into believing, well, it really wasn't that bad. All I know is uh, I was fortunate enough from the very beginning of the lockdowns to recognize the potential for danger. And that recognition, I think, is being proven out here. I'm not so much beating my chest to say, I was right, as to say, we saw this coming.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome
1: back to the show. Oh, I got a doozy of an article to share with you. I know that uh, wokeness is being pushed on us from a lot of different angles right now. And it's refreshing to get a break every so often. So I'm including in my show notes today an article from Alexander Riley. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. A rare exception to the 24-7 woke rule at NPR. And he's, uh, you know, Alex Alexander says, look, there are probably more than a few Americans who can remember back when NPR endeavored to speak to and for a much larger piece of the public than it does right now. In fact, he says, I was once a regular listener back in the days of Garrison Keeler, who was unpersoned by hashtag me too a few years ago. And of course, the Magliozzi brothers who had that hilarious show of automotive fix it tips. But the audience differed from today's urban progressive NPR crowd in that at least some listeners had seen underneath a car's hood once or twice. But in recent years, he points out, NPR has descended into full-blooded wokeness. In fact, it's close to unlistenable now because of this political evangelism in nearly every minute of airtime. The same lens is applied to every topic under the sun and mercilessly forced into every segment. But there's some good news here. And this is, he says, last week there was a segment on an opera singer. And he thought, well, that's outside the realm of expectation. But why would they be paying any attention to an obviously elitist art form that's opera when there's so much woke contemporary music to talk about? And indeed, they do spend a lot of time on that. But the host says the opera singer's name is Latonia Moore. Now, from that and from her speaking voice... Alexander Riley says, I discern her race. Now I'm certain of the direction that the program is going to take. Opera is full of racism. What can be done to revolutionize it? I'm waiting, finger poised on the record button on my phone, so I can speak some notes for the eventual writing I'll do on this latest example of woke NPR. But he says, then, Ms. Moore gloriously refuses to play the game. The host is a new person at NPR Layla Fidel, she's an immaculately politically correct Arab Muslim woman who grew up in Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. Fidel tries mightily to get Moore to go where she wants. Isn't it difficult to participate as a black woman in an art forum so ick, European? Are there racial barriers to her success? Hint, hint, of course there must be. What does she think of white singers playing the role of non-white characters? Harmful in every conceivable way, yes? But believe it or not, Moore is having none of it. In fact, she says, the challenge of being a black opera singer, not a challenge, not really. I have no obstacles. Now, Alexander Riley says, okay, I'm listening intently now. The art form is what matters, she says, and anyone with the performative and vocal chops can do any role. In the interview, Moore also talks about members of her family trying to move her away from opera and back into jazz where she had started. They said, you'll be more successful in jazz. You'll go further. But she says, I didn't care, you see, because when it came down to it, what was going to give me fulfillment? And even as a teenager, as an 18-year-old, I knew this. I said, this is what I'm supposed to do. I feel it in my bones. Now, more continues. I mean, I don't know. When I started into opera, I really didn't think about the fact that I was black. That didn't matter to me at all because my whole idea was becoming this chameleon and being, you know, someone Italian, being a 15-year-old geisha in Nagasaki, Japan. For me, it didn't matter what my skin was because this is an art form that's based on suspension of disbelief. Now, Fidel made one last courageous effort to get more away from this thought crime, but we live in a world where skin color comes up so often because of the history and because of the world where a lot of these operas were written. Here's Moore's response. She says, I'll tell you this. Very little causes me offense. I don't take my preconceived notions and judgments and prejudices and bring them into the opera house or into any form of art because that means you're not embracing it. Wow. Now, Alexander Riley says, God bless Latonia Moore. She has made a new fan. But he says, lest you think this is anything more than a rare exception to the rule at NPR, I'd suggest tuning in at any random time for a few minutes to see what's going on. So he says, I did that as I was drafting this article and found a hilarious textbook case of pot meat kettle on all things considered as two female hosts, voices dripping with sniffy disdain, describe terrifying right wing conspiracy theorists on tour. Nothing like a little moral preaching about dangerous conspiracies from an organization that endlessly tells its listeners how fearful they should be about non-existent horrors like an epidemic of police violence against unarmed and non-resisting black men. Never fear, loyally woke NPR listeners. He says it's a near certainty that that work is that work is underway to there to make sure that what happened in the Latonia Moore story doesn't happen again. Now this may be a small thing, but I'll I tell you, I'm I'm encouraged to when someone, not in a combative way, but just matter-of-factly stands up to, you know, the prodding of the the woke. Well, you know, of course we're here to talk about the horrible oppression and racism you must have suffered. Well, I haven't suffered that. But but of course you are. You're a woman of color. You why why of course you. <laughs> it it really is. It's political evangelizing, and it's what's it's what makes so much of legacy media just un unviewable and unlistenable and unreadable. Anyway, I just wanted to share that one with you because it's it's such a great exception, a bright spot amidst an otherwise pretty dark area. Now, speaking of the woke. Got to share with you uh, the Z-Man's latest column on the rise of the spiteful mutants, which explains why we see so much of the craziness that has been normalized of late. The Z-Man, writing for Taki Magazine, T-A-K-I, Taki's Magazine, says anthropologist Peter Frost and population geneticist Henry Harpening, Harpending rather, authored a paper back in 2015 arguing that promiscuous use of the death penalty had a eugenic effect on the English population. Now, specifically what they were talking about was by removing at least 2% of the population each year, those prone to violence, the overall population became dramatically less violent over time. Now, it was and it remains a controversial claim, mostly because of its implications, but also because it contradicts the prevailing orthodoxy. It suggests that people are not, in fact, amorphous blobs that can be shaped into anything. We are the product of our genetics, which is the result of mating decisions of our ancestors. To accept that is to reject the ideological underpinnings of liberal democracy. Others have argued the Black Plague disproportionately removed the stupid from the European population. Now, there is a correlation between IQ and health, so it stands to reason that the plagues will hit the stupid harder than the smart. Remove enough stupid people from the population and the average IQ rises. This could explain why Europeans suddenly rocketed ahead of the rest of the world. Of course, the same argument could be made on behalf of the death penalty. Generally, criminals are of below-average intelligence, and if your policy is to remove criminals from the breeding stock via the hangman, you'll inevitably be removing far more stupid criminals than smart ones. In other words, the death penalty probably helped raise the overall IQ of the population. A population that is smart and peaceful will be more successful than a population that is stupid and violent. Now, he says we only have to compare Finland with Somalia to see how this works in our own age. Somalia has an estimated average IQ of 67, while Finland comes in at 101. Even assuming measurement errors, the gap is massive, and it shows in the results on the ground. Not only can a smart and peaceful people be more successful in the material sense, but they can also be more trusting, which means they can take risks. In a world full of predatory criminals, no one can trust anyone outside a family. On the other hand, in a world free of predatory criminals is one where you can trust everyone. Therefore, the decline in violence in Europe had to come with an increase in in social trust. In a high-trust society, you can take risks like trying to invent a better plow or a better way to preserve food. You can also question official orthodoxy without fear of being killed, so new ideas get room to breathe. European people made the modern world because they reward improvement. If you can produce a better way, even if it offends a rich person, you will be rewarded. Now, what all of this points to is that within every human population, there is a defect rate. And those defects have consequences. Now, some of the defects turn out to be harmless, like stupid people who can be employed in simple labor. Other defects can be quite harmful, like murderers and rapists. As evolutionary psychologist Ed Dutton points out, some of these defects result in spiteful mutants. Isn't that an interesting term? Spiteful mutants are the men in dresses demanding everyone prepare, pretend rather they are some third sex rather than a lunatic. These are the feminists who make war on the normal sexual relations of society. These are the people policing speech online and inflicting diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. They're also spiteful mutants. These are the human defects slowly making life impossible in Western countries. Now, Professor Dutton points out we used to have social mechanisms for minimizing the impact of human defects. The death penalty is the extreme example, but social pressure reduced mating opportunities. The scolds bridle was to control what we now call feminists. Of course, most of what we think of as feminists were called witches in the past and burned at the stake. Now, I got to tap the brakes here because we are up against a break of our own, but we'll come back to the Z-Man's article here on the rise of the spiteful mutants. By the way, I'm not a fan of the death penalty. It's, it's that I don't trust the state to be making those kind of decisions. I do believe, though, if a person is uh, experiencing, you know, violent crime, someone is victimizing them, they should have skill at arms and sufficient responsibility to end that threat. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfoods.com. Sorry, it's food, singular, lifesavingfood.com. At any rate, there is a link in my show notes. You can click on it. It'll take you directly to their website. I don't know about you, but uh, I find more and more peace of mind in uh, socking away a little extra food storage, a little emergency preparedness and self-sufficiency for whatever may be coming. Worst case scenario, yeah, we get to go camping or we get to use it uh, under the best of times. If things do go sideways... Something tells me we'll be very happy to have options at that time. All right, back to the Z-Man's article, The Rise of the Spiteful Mutants. It really struck me when uh, when he talks about how there was a time where we, we kept the impact of human defects minimalized. And I know some people are like, how can you talk like this about human defects? But look, people who are prone to violence, people who are prone to... Um, Irrationality to the point of like like lunacy. I think we need to to minimize their impact. Not to say, hey, here here are my kids. Would you would you please spend eight hours a day with them and teach them whatever you think is most important? Maybe maybe I've seen one too many libs of TikTok videos, but uh, there there are some really interesting activists and and groomers out there. And I don't mean groomers in the sense that well they're just grooming the kids for sex. They're they're grooming them to become young socialists you know, who will will rise up with the, the incoming socialist regime. You do understand there is a revolutionary dynamic that is taking place right now in our society, and its intent is to sweep away the system of governance that was based on inalienable rights for which government is called into existence to protect those rights to keep us free. The socialists don't want that. The collectivists do not want this. And they know that they have a captive audience in kids. But I digress. Back to Rise of the Spiteful Mutants. The Z-Man says, Because we have systematically dismantled these mechanisms for minimizing the impact of human defects, we are now being overrun by them. Western societies are becoming unbearable due to the spiteful mutants. They've infected every aspect of society to the point where things are starting to break down. Even basic things like elections are proving impossible due to these mutants. Now, holding an election is one of the simpler tasks for a society. People show up, they then prove that they're who they claim to be, and that they're eligible to vote. Rational societies limit the franchise to those who have a stake in society. That means criminals and lunatics are not allowed to vote. The votes are then counted and the results are posted. The winners cheer and the losers promise to do better next time. But the Z-Man says in America, our election system is on the cusp of collapse. States like Arizona and Nevada now are now unable to count the votes. Fraud is so rampant that no honest person thinks the results are on the level. Pennsylvania supposedly voted for a brain-damaged hobo to be their senator. Joe Biden has severe dementia and we're supposed to believe he's the most popular man since Jesus. This is just one recent example of the alarming impact of these misfits and deviants who now stalk every aspect of society. The COVID hysteria was driven by spiteful mutants demanding attention from the rest of us. The holidays are approaching and every normal American is now preparing to deal with the kooky aunt or the nutty uncle who ruins every family get-together with their crazy politics. The various claims made by evolutionary psychology with regards to the impact of things like the death penalty are far from proven. In fact, they'll probably never be fully tested because we lack the data. What these claims do provide is a useful framework for explaining the rise of Europe starting around 1500. They help us shape the narrative and make further research more productive. They also help us understand the current crisis. The forces that increase the stock of human capital in Europe are now in reverse. Instead of reducing the proportion of defective people, social forces are now increasing their numbers. I would actually use the term they're recruiting for those numbers. As in like recruiting kids. Hey kids, uh, what do you think? Are you really a boy? Are you really a girl? Let's explore this. Like the inflection point in 1500, says the Z-Man, when European progress suddenly turned upward, we are approaching an inflection point where things suddenly turn much worse. This will not end well. I mean, look, if you if you speak out today and you say, you know, I don't really think it's a great idea to be taking your kids to some gay pride festival or to some uh, drag drag queen story hour or drag show in the park. And there are those who adamantly, well, Brian, it's just, it's just, you know, inclusiveness and we've got to be kind and we've got to be accepting of all these things. Well, okay, well, as your kid is sitting there doing the dildo ring toss, you know, and trying to throw rings onto a big stack of rainbow colored dildos. Help me understand how that's appropriate for children. And, you know, well, it's just family, it's just different strokes for different folks. I'm sorry, but that's degenerate. And while there may be some adults who, you know, in the privacy of a club or in the privacy of a home may be into, a, you know, that kind of activity, hey, more power to them, but the key is keep it private. Why do we have to drag kids into this? I know, I sound like an old, you know, scold, an old prude, You're no fun allowed, there's no fun allowed, but this isn't just about having fun, and it's not just about, I just want to express myself in a way that's different. I see something much more sinister in that this is being directly aimed at children, and what makes it sinister is it's aiming at young minds that are not fully formed, that are still trying to work through the confusion of figuring out who they are and how the world works, and and they're being brought into the ranks of degeneracy and told this is not only good, it's normal. But yeah, go up there and tuck a dollar bill into that uh, that uh, drag queen's you know g-string. And uh, let's sit back and laugh and clap as they spread their legs and gyrate for us and, and shake their stuff in our faces. I, I'm just trying to imagine what, uh, what kind of common sense could exist in such a situation like that. And, and the only answer I have is it can't. But I promise you, for saying such a thing like this, I'm, I'm considered the odd man out. I'm considered a, a bigot. I'm considered unreasonable or irrational. Or, worse yet, you'll have people gaslight you and say, well, Brian, this isn't really happening anywhere. No, it, it certainly is. It's not only happening, but people are vigorously defending it as if it's a good and normal thing. Now, you got to understand, I'm, I'm not saying we need to find purpose in going to find people who are different than us and making them feel bad or persecuting them. I think the best thing that we can do is... For people who are determined to act out in degenerate ways is leave them alone. Let them have obscurity rather than attention, and especially our kids' attention. But somehow wokeness has shifted the burden to, you know, the, the person who is, is against these kind of things is considered, you know, de facto a bad person. Well, you if you don't support this, why well, you must just be filled with hate and rage. No possibility I could be uh, filled with some common sense, perhaps? Or concern for where this leads? Look, I'm not a, I'm not a historian. I'm not uh, any kind of a PhD who can tell you this is, uh, this is what my extensive study has shown. But I know that there have been enough people over the course of humanity, and I'm talking billions of man hours spent thinking about and, and uh, millions of lives who've, who've applied themselves to searching out what works and what doesn't. And there's a very clear pattern that emerges as you look back over human history, and that is the more society practices self-restraint, in other words, uh, channels their uh, libido in in a productive direction, for instance, uh, insists upon accountability in in one's uh, sexual behavior, Guys, especially, they're looking at us and saying, don't go out there and father a bunch of kids and just, you know, go parading off, you know, somewhere else to, you know, sow more wild oats, but be responsible. Marriage, by the way, is the institution that that really compels that responsibility. But the more a society has self-control, the higher that society can rise because they're not spending all their time just chasing after pleasure. Now, conversely, this is according to British anthropologist J.D. Unwin, Societies that make pleasure seeking their top priority go into decline without exception. He studied, I believe it was 85 or 86 different societies, all sizes, primitive and advanced, you know, ancient as well as modern, from, you know, the Romans and the Sumerians down to little South Sea, you know, South Pacific Island societies. And the pattern remains the same. When people make pleasure-seeking, their highest priority. It ultimately leads them to a baser existence. They they decline rather than ascend in terms of uh, their advancement academically, scientifically, artistically. Now, again, I'm not trying to tell people, you know, you shouldn't have any fun. If you're not uh, miserable, you're not doing it right. But we sure have a lot of people who seem to think that, uh, you know, this is the one true way and they do not uh, brook any type of of dissent. I'm just suggesting that maybe they don't really have our best interests in mind. In fact, if someone wanted to undermine and destroy a society, that's the focus that they should be pushing. Hey, everybody, it's all about me. It's all about narcissism. It's all about pleasure. And then watch society come apart like a soup sandwich. This is The Brian Hyde Show.